All right, so uh, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do what we always do. We're going to start the way we always start. Uh, each uh, sermon, we're going to talk to the kids. Pull up my notes. Yes, here we go. Okay, so uh, kids, I want to tell you what this sermon's going to be about, what the sermon text is going to be about. Uh, so I want to tell you a little story. Uh, this is a true story. Like, super true, okay? Not one of those true, true, this is really true stories. Um, this, is, this is a few years ago. There was a lady named uh, Roberta, Roberta Urse, and she's with her family, and they're at the beach. Kids, who likes the beach? Oh, come on, who likes the beach? Kids, don't we all like, oh yeah, okay, thank you. Okay, so they're at the beach. Now, y'all know when you go to the beach, you know sometimes there are those flags and so, like if there's, I can't remember what the colors mean or stuff, but like if there's a red flag, that means something. A yellow flag means something. But you know, like sometimes the ocean can be pretty, pretty dangerous. Do y'all know what those things are that will pull you out? Who knows what those are called? The, the yes, y'all said it. What were you going to say, Richard? Is that? Yeah, the, there's this current they call a rip current. And it's super strong. It will literally suck you out. So, Roberta and her family are swimming. They're in Panama City Beach. Our college students, the RUFers, go there every, every summer. It's really awesome. Well, they're at one part of Panama City Beach that, that has this rip current, and they get caught in the rip current. The whole family is caught in this rip current, and they are yelling and screaming for help. Well, another woman named Jessica Simmons and her husband see this, and they are running, running, running into the water. And right by, you know, the water, there's this trash can with a boogie board in it that someone had thrown away. Jessica grabs the boogie board as she's running into the water. And they swim, 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 swim. And they get to the family. And now they're needing help too. And they turn around. They realize that all the other people on the beach see them in need. And so they have formed a human chain. One person locked onto the next person, locked onto the next person, and they're going deeper and deeper and deeper into the water where there are enough people where they get to Jessica and they get to the kids and they get to uh, Roberta, and one by one they hand the kids and then they hand the family back to the shore. And then, like, each person's like, okay, no, me, get me back, get me back. And they get every single person safe and sound back on the beach. And they save the family. Human chain human chain. It was amazing. It was like this miracle where everybody came together. Okay, that right there, kids, that is the church. That's what the church is. We are a group of people who are human chain. We are locking on to one another in like the, the storm, the hardness like that life is. Life can feel like this rip current and you're drowning in it. You know what's going to happen? Somebody next to you, somebody in this church that loves you is going to come by and grab you. And if they need help, someone's going to grab them. If they need help, someone's going to grab them. That's what the church is. We're this super huge, long human chain taking care of each other. Now, here's the really, really awesome, awesome, crazy thing. This church, you look around, you're not helping. Like, that was awesome what they did on the beach because they're a bunch of strangers. Look around. These are not strangers. Because Jesus lived for you, because, this, because Jesus died for each and every single one of us, we are all one family. So as we look to each other and we're like, you need help, you need help, human chain, I love you, I got you, because we are one family with Jesus. That's what this sermon, this text is about today. We're in 1 Corinthians. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, the second half of chapter 11, verses 17 to 34. 
this is this is Paul writing to the church in Corinth that is full of all kinds of divisions, all kinds of problems, and he's just addressing like each one one by one by one. Well, what he has started to do in in an extended passage in the uh, letter to the Corinthians, this first letter, uh, it's like chapter 11 to 14, he's talking all about worship, like stuff that's going on in the worship service that they are getting so wrong, they're so divided, and he's, he's answering uh, those divisions with this. So, uh, please stand for the reading of God's word, beginning in chapter 11, verse 17. Paul says, now, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and to drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. Now, about the other things, I will give directions when I come. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Just give you uh, some context here, what Paul is up to. Uh, In the early church, the early church, the most common place to gather for worship was to meet in people's homes. And typically, the only people who owned homes big enough to host entire church gatherings were wealthy, wealthy homeowners uh, uh, who were members of the church. And so in Roman homes, now, so that's kind of what the church is doing gathering, but just speaking generally of Roman homes, in Roman homes at this time, there were usually two dining areas. You had what we think of as a dining area inside, and then you had an outside atrium courtyard area as another dining room. When you had a dinner party, the custom was your most important people came in and they ate inside with you. Uh, and then your, there, was, there was this division between your, your lesser important guests, they ate outside. Uh, the people inside got the best food, uh, while the people outside got more of the leftovers. And these things had a name. Uh, the, uh, they're, they're called love feasts. 
and how they are practiced in the culture has now made its way into the church. And it's being practiced in the church as part of the worship service, as an extension and celebration of the communion meal. And so you've got so this is just you've got certain certain wealthy people, doesn't say all, but you've got certain wealthy people eating and drinking, and they're eating and drinking in plenty. And then right across the way, there are the the poor people in the church with nothing, just looking on and watching. Uh, and uh, this is, they say this is the church, that this is uh, how they practice the sacrament of communion. And Paul says, you are ripping apart the unity of this community. You're ripping apart the unity that you're supposed to have in Christ. So rather, rather than living out that unity with each other at this time, they're communicating, this group that's doing this, we're rich or poor. We're educated, you're uneducated. We're powerful, you're weak. And Paul says that the significance of this abuse, the abusing church fellowship like this, the significance of it is highlighted by certain people getting sick and some even dying after eating and celebrating this so-called communion, which is really not communion. So Paul says in a very real, literal way, these people have brought judgment down on themselves. Now, uh, let's make sense of that. (laughs) There are are a few different ways to try to make sense of this. We can make sense of this following the flow of Paul's thought here. What does he say in verse 19? In verse 19, he says that what these factions, what these divisions do is they actually do expose, they do serve, at the very least, they serve to expose who is genuine among you? Like, who are genuine Christians? Who are the genuine members of the church? You can recognize it. You can see it. Who really belongs, who are true believers, and who are not true believers. But what it means is that there are some, there are some who have made their way into the church claiming to be one thing, and they're not that thing. Uh, Who hear and who know what is being preached, this gospel, uh, what is being proclaimed about Jesus, and they are pretending to believe it when they know they don't. So what this is saying is that there are, there are charlatans in, in the church in Corinth. There are frauds. There are scammers. There are con artists. And they are judged for their hypocrisy. This happens in another instance in, in the book of Acts. Uh, you may know that kind of infamous couple, Ananias and Sapphira. This is very similar. We're not going to talk about that. That That's another sermon. But it is very, very similar in that uh, they were exposed as hypocrites and judged. And here the same thing is happening. There are hypocrites in in this church that are being judged right there. Now, that begs the question, why is there hypocrisy? Like, why is that so lethal? Well, answer that question with another question. What destroys, what destroys people's experiences of the local church more than anything? It's, it's when people get burned by churches. Uh, what do those people who get bur- burned by churches talk about? They, they talk about hypocrisy in the church, hypocrisy in the leadership, hypocrisy in the people. Jesus talked a l- about a lot of sins. The one he harped on the most Uh, especially when he was calling out the religious leaders, the Pharisees. 
He saved his harshest words for the sin of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is, is lethal to those uh, inside and outside the church. People outside the church, they see people inside the church who are saying one thing and not living like it. They watch these people who say one thing, I believe in God, I believe in his grace, I believe he's forgiven me of my sins, I believe he's changed me. And then they go and they watch them live for the world's approval, uh, totally insecure, totally full of fear, totally full of pride, acting like they have it all together at the same time, freaking out about everything, living just like everybody else. There's no difference. And they hurt people just like everybody else hurts people. And they betray people just like everybody else betrays people. And people on the outside look at that hypocrisy on the inside of the church, and they just say, well, no thanks. Okay, but, or we could say and, and, this is also, what is happening here is also about when, when this happens, or where this happens, as in, we've got to be really, really careful that we don't rip this out of context, and then apply it today to say, you come up, you, you come up in just a little bit, and you take this the wrong way, you just be warned. Like, that would be ripping, ripping this out of context. Really got to understand what's going on here uh, in the moment of uh, history, in this redemptive history. Don't make an incident like this normative for the church. This happened at the beginning of the church. This happened when the church is in, it, they're still in infant form. Paul just planted this church. So this is the age of the apostles. The church is brand new. Brand new. We don't know we don't need to know exactly what these people in the Corinthian church, uh, what they're scheming, what their motivation is for being in the church and abusing the fellowship like this. We don't know, but we don't need to know. But, but just as it's true today, uh, as it was true back then, anyone coming into the church, like knowing, knowingly, uh, actively deceiving the leadership, anybody coming into the church trying to deceive uh, uh, the people claiming uh, by the power of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, that, that they're one of us when they know they are not, that's not a good thing. It wasn't then, it's not today. What this is saying is that this level of hypocrisy uh, and deception right here at the beginning of the church, it would be devastating to the church, and so it cannot be allowed. It'd be devastating uh, to the church here at the beginning uh, that these kinds of charlatans uh, are allowed to infiltrate the church and deceive the apostles and there deceive the people. It's going to undermine what's going on right now. Everything that the apostles are saying and doing, it's going to lead to distrust, fear, suspicion, breakdown. If the apostles can be deceived, how can anything they say, anything they do be trusted? How do we know they haven't been deceived? You know, uh, how, how can we trust God is still at work, that, uh, that the church is going to work if its leaders can't, think, can't keep things in order? And so at this pivotal moment, at this pivotal, pivotal moment in the history of the church with this vulnerable infant church, God acts. And these pretenders who are destroying unity in the church, they eat and they drink judgment on themselves. And loved ones, it's not that God has anger problems. He doesn't have control issues. He's not throwing a temper tantrum here. Uh, as in like, I hope you don't catch God in one of his bad days. That's not, that's not what Paul says that this is, what this is is an inbreaking of final judgment. 
and, and we may not like final judgment intruding into time and space, we do like another form of intrusion, miracles. We love miracles. Miracles are fantastic. Those are the best. Like the miracles of Jesus, the miracles of the apostles, those are the inbreaking of the restorative powers that are going to produce the ultimate cosmic heavenly paradise that we are going to dwell in forever and ever and ever. The miracles are this inbreaking of heaven. Uh, the restorative powers. Uh, that's, that's what's going on when Jesus does his miracles. Uh, he's promising uh, this heavenly paradise to come. And look, you can see it break in right here. Well, the curse here in 1 Corinthians 11s, same thing, just the opposite. As in judgment. What this is, is at the very least, it's, really, it's super sobering. It does expose what we too often take for granted that Jesus is for real, that God is for real. And that has, because, y'all, because Jesus is for real, that has serious consequences for everybody. In the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, there's Lucy and there's Susan, and they're in this new land, Narnia, uh, and they're learning about Aslan, who is the Christ figure of Narnia, and they're talking to Mr. Beaver. They're talking to Mr. Beaver, and they're asking Mr. Beaver about Aslan, who, who this lion is, and they say, is, is Aslan a man? And Mr. Beaver says, Aslan a man? Certainly not, I tell you. He's the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who, who's the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. Is he, is he safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. He's a lion. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. This curse serves to also highlight not just the seriousness of who our king is, like he is serious, but also serves to highlight the the goodness of our king to his people. So the blessing, like to, the blessing is there. The, the, the blessing of communion with God and what it will mean for God's people, verse 32, at the very end, he says, when we are judged at the end, when God's people are judged, when true believers are judged, we're not going to be condemned with the rest of the unbelieving world. That's what this communion thing is all about. And this inbreaking of judgment against pretenders who are abusing communion, it highlights the inbreaking of blessing for God's people. Not just what is to come, but he's saying there's also a blessing that is inbreaking right, right now, already, right now. So let's just talk, what is the big deal with communion? Like, what is the big deal that we do every Sunday here? Like, what is the blessing? Well, Paul says, we can get this. Remember when this thing is instituted. Jesus says, do this. You know, and he passes the bread. Do this. He passes the wine. Do this and do this in remembrance of him. So, like, what is communion about? First thing, communion is a symbol. This thing is a symbol. It is a symbol that we are supposed to practice. Do this and do this. And the do this and do this is just what Jesus did. That's the symbol of he passed bread and he passed wine. That's the symbol. 
The symbol is a distributing and a participating. It is a distributing and an eating and a drinking in this meal. That's the symbol, okay? Now, what does the symbol mean? What does the sign signify? What is the thing signified in the sign? Loved ones, you know what a meal signifies. It signifies fellowship. It signifies communion. That's why we call it communion. It signifies fellowship with each other. Now, here's the, here's the crazy, here's the really crazy thing. Just follow me for one second. Who are the others? If fellowship with others, who are the others? Crazy, crazy thing. When you partake of this sign, it signifies fellowship with whom? With Jesus. You, a sinner here on earth, truly fellowship with your risen and glorified Lord and Savior who reigns in heaven right now. That is bananas. Of course, uh, how this is done is by Jesus' death for us. And this is what Jesus tells us that the, you know, as we're talking about intrusions, you know, of, you know, curses and miracles and blessings, the supreme intrusion of heaven into earth, into time and space is not just a symbol. The real thing of heaven breaking into our reality is Jesus himself, the son of God coming down from heaven. And it is Jesus redeeming us uh, through his death on the cross. That's, the, look, y'all, the, the cross is the first act of final judgment. I mean, you think of like judgment day, you think of that last day. You know what the cross is? It is the first act of final judgment against sinners. And it's Jesus who takes that wrath for our sin. As in, you put your faith in Jesus, you truly have been judged already at the cross with Jesus. Where he takes the wrath for your sin. That final judgment that has been intruded at the cross and it fell on Christ on the cross. The cross is an intrusion of final judgment into the world. At the cross, you and I experience that final judgment through faith in Jesus. And what communion is, is it's an exhibition of those blessings that you already have because of what Jesus has already done. Uh, communion is an exhibition of the benefits that come to us from Jesus' death. It is only because of the work of the cross that these blessings come to us. It is only because of the cross that you have fellowship with Jesus right now. Which means, Paul says, which Jesus says, when you partake of it, you are showing forth his death. When you partake of it, you are showing, showing forth the glories of Jesus's work. The glories of what he did for us. Now here's the, here's the function, the, like the, the practicality of communion, like the function of communion, what it does. It does this. I know that you cannot see your Lord. I know that you cannot hold him right now. I know that. Not yet. But when you partake of this, we are not just thinking, y'all, we are not just thinking of something that Jesus did in the past. We are not just thinking of something that is coming in the future. This is heaven breaking in right now with blessing. This is a visible sign 
of the invisible grace of Jesus working by his spirit in you right now whereby we have fellowship and we have communion with him and with each other right now. That's the other thing is it's, it's a fellowship with Jesus, but it's not just you and Jesus. It is everyone else here. It is us and Jesus. You think about human history ever since the fall. What is human history since the fall but a history of violence, division, and hatred? Think about the moment that we live in right now. We, we draw a line in the sand about everything. Sex, identity, race, Democrat or Republican, conservative or progressive, you know, rich or poor. You gonna mask up or you anti-mask? Vaxxer, anti-vaxxer. Astros fan, everybody else. <laughs> and the church is supposed to be this really weird thing where different people come together in unity and in fellowship and in love. And your wealth or your lack of wealth, your education or your lack of education, your background, your nationality, your ethnicity, the color of your skin, your success or lack of success, your achievements, your failures, like your sin, none of that stuff gets you to the table. None of that stuff keeps you from the table. Your access to this fellowship here with that one up there is all because of that one up there. All you bring to the table, like literally and metaphorically, all you bring to the table is your mess. That's it. The, the, world, call, the world calls us hypocrites. The world calls us hypocrites because they misunderstand what we say about ourselves. And then also because we sometimes misunderstand what we say about ourselves. And then we, we need to go ahead and admit, well, right, I'll be the first to admit I'm a hypocrite. Uh, and this is where when we come to a place like this, a time like this, to a people like this, we've got to reset our thinking each week about what we are walking into when we walk into this gathering of this people. Like, you're walking into a mess, a mess of people who are a mess. You're, you're walking into a gathering of misfits. And loved one, you are one of those misfits. And we are so much more because of Jesus, which is why we gather. Do y'all remember the first Harry Potter book? Um, what was it? Uh, uh, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone or Philosopher's Stone. Uh, Harry is living in the regular world. Remember, he's living in that regular world of the muggle world, and he's a, no, he's a nobody. He's less than a nobody. He's, he's neglected. Uh, he is starved. He is constantly insulted, abused, and rejected. Uh, and then he finds out that he is a wizard. And he goes off to Hogwarts, school of witchcraft and wizardry. He doesn't get it, but everybody else in the wizarding world knows who Harry is. He's a gigantic celebrity wherever he goes. And he's wherever he goes and he's recognized, people point in amazement and, and they whisper and they stare in awe. Paul is saying to the Corinthians and he is saying to us, listen, you have been rejected by the world. You're going to continue to be rejected by the world. You should know that. Uh, and don't you know, you've got to know, you've got to remember that you, 
Each and every one of you is absolutely precious in God's sight. More precious than you can possibly ever fathom. Like you are such, each and every one of you is such a big deal to God. You have got to treat each other like that. Whether you are rich or poor, you have got to look at one another. You are such a big deal to Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, this is in his seminal work. One of my buddies reminded me, we read this in seminary, Life Together. Uh, it, in this book, he blows up this, this misconstrued, this confusion between the ideal, what we, call, what we think of as the ideal community, where everything is great and, and it's easy. Uh, it's, you know, this is the church community that's always fun. It's always exciting. Uh, it's always a high. It's always getting something done. It's always meeting my needs versus the real church community, which is with real people which is by definition difficult because people are the worst and they're difficult. He, Bonhoeffer says this. He says, every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and it must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of it. What he's saying is when you love your idea of a community more than the people that actually make up that community, you are going to destroy the thing that you're actually supposed to be loving. And listen, each and every single one of us here is guilty of this. So who am I talking about here? You, me, all of us. Because we're in America, y'all, we're consumers. And, and, and there's another church right there. Uh, and the grass is always, it's always greener. That's just, that is just difficult for us. That's the world we live in right now. Um, another pastor, my friend reminded me, another pastor said this too. He said, uh, unless there are about 10 things you don't like about your church, you really haven't started to do community yet. And he is not taught, I mean, let us, let me count the ways, right? Uh, listen, uh, he is not, let's be really, really clear. He is not talking about abuse. That is never okay. And that is never to be tolerated. That is to be fought against. He's not talking about heresy. He's not talking, he's he simply, he goes on, he's simply talking about people who annoy you. <laughs> and you choose to stick with them. That cuts against the grain of American consumerism. He says, when you start to experience conflict with someone, that doesn't, that, when you start to experience conflict with someone, that does not represent the end of community. But the, it, he says it's the beginning. You're finally bumping up against one another. You know, there's an offense, there's drama, there's pain, there's awkwardness. Rather than, you know, rather than bailing, rather than resorting to gossip, you move toward the other person and they move towards you. And, and, and there's listening and there's kindness and there's grace and you work together and you figure it out. Now, what, what kind of community of people does that? The church. There was, uh, I'm gonna end with this. There was this uh, short story in uh, 1958 by a woman named Karen Blixen who actually wrote under the pseudonym uh, Isaac Dennison. The short story is called Babbitt's Feast. 
Babette's Feast, and it uh, was made into a Danish film, very acclaimed Danish film. It's set in the 19th century in a little town on the western coast of Denmark, okay? And this little town is populated by a super, super strict, strict, strict sect of Orthodox Lutherans. Uh, and the, they wear, so what are they like? They wear nothing but black, nothing but black. They're very, very stern. They live a very, very simple life, uh, very much. Think of like Amish people. It's, kind of, it's that kind of thing. They eat nothing but boiled cod and this, this, this bread that's mil, uh, mixed up with milk. It's like this mush, mushy milk bread. Um, th- that's all they eat because anything else would be unacceptable and, and an unnecessary worldly excess. So, okay, they're, they're a pious community. You know, they, they go to church every Sunday. They attend worship. They work hard, but there is no love in this community. There's no love in their day-to-day. There's no love in their worship. There is no affection. They're a community of sorts, but there's no unity. And then uh, in comes... Um, uh, this outsider. In comes this outsider and finds this people who are all miserable in their grudges against one another. Uh, and this uh, outsider is Babette. And she's a French refugee. Uh, and she's fleeing the French Revolution. She's already lost her husband. She's already lost her son and two elderly sisters in this little small town. They take her in. And then the whole town really takes her in. And she becomes the cook uh, for these two sisters. Uh, and she lives there for like 10 years. But, but Babette does not fit into this community. You know, you think typical like French woman, like she loves life. Uh, she loves all things beautiful. She loves all things colorful. She loves all things artistic. And, uh, and she's this really, really good cook. She's there for 10 years. And then all of a sudden she finds out that she has won this massive lottery back in Paris that her friend has been playing her numbers over and over and over. And she wins. She wins this huge lottery back in Paris. And now overnight she is super wealthy rich. And she tells the village she wants to thank all of them for taking her in. Uh, and so she's going to prepare a French meal for them. Now, the right thing to do, even though they don't want to do this, the right thing to do is to accept. So they reluctantly accept. So she sends for supplies from Paris. The ingredients come in, and there's so much of it, and it is so exotic. Stuff this community has never seen, has never heard of. Uh, preparations begin, uh, and everyone starts to freak out as the preparations begin because it's becoming this real thing. And they start to uh, get scared that this is going to become kind of this sinful, uh, uh, just uh, sensual thing. Even like this may become some form of devilry. It's too much feasting. So they get together in a really hasty conference. And the sisters and the congregation, they agree. Listen, we've already agreed to eat. So they agree to eat, but they're not going to enjoy it. <laughs> so they're going to eat, eat it, but they're, and they're not going to mention the food. Day comes, feast is prepared. It is a seven-course meal with everything from pancakes and caviar and creams and turtle soup and sherries and quail and puff pastries and truffle sauces. There are all kinds of greens, all kinds of fruits, champagnes, wines, sponge cakes, candied cherries, figs, cognacs. And the meal begins with great hesitance and great reluctance and great suppression until someone scrapes the bottom of their bowl. And they look around, they realize they are just inhaling this luxurious food. Uh, and it's too delicious to deny. The, 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 the food, the rich wine, it overtakes them. And so they begin to share their love of Babette 
They begin just talking amongst themselves about how much they love Babette. And then they, and then they just start to praise the food. And one woman belches. And the guy sitting next to her says, Hallelujah. <laughs> and the party is now on. And you've got two women two women in a corner who had been gossiping, gossiping about each other, embracing one another, apologizing to one another, hugging each other. You've got two, two men who had cheated each other on a business deal, now in another corner, laughing, arms in arms, making the deal right, forgiving one another, embracing one another. Uh, the, the, there's all this reconciliation. All around, there's joy, there's laughter, there's cheer, there's grace. They're joining arm in arm, human chain, human chain, and they start singing these hymns, uh, th these hymns that they used to just mumble in church. Now they are belting out in the spirit of their forefather, Luther, who used to belt this stuff out in the beer hall. That is how they are belting out their hymns now. And when it's all over, they are now so afraid that Babette, who is now wealthy, is going to leave them with uh, her wealth. And she reveals to them that there is no more wealth. She spent it all on the feast. She spent it all on her broken people to bring them together in love and in joy. And it was worth it to her because she loves them. And she was never going to leave them. Okay. Really, I'm ending here. Paul, Paul could have referenced this night a bunch of different ways. Uh, on the night of the Last Supper, on the night before the crucifixion, like on the night that Jesus got arrested and Peter cut that guy's ear off, like he could have, he could have described this any number of ways, but he says on the night Jesus was betrayed because on that night Judas ate and drank judgment on himself, exposing himself as the charlatan he always was. But the betrayal that betrayal that intended to destroy any possibility of a fellowship of God's people by destroying the very object of their fellowship, that betrayal failed. And on the night he was betrayed, Jesus, he gives us a sign. He gives us a sign that he spends all of himself on his broken people to unite us together in love and in joy, and it is worth it to him because he loves us. And loved ones, he is never going to leave us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time, and we lift up our prayers together as we pray that prayer that our Lord Jesus taught us to pray, and God's people prayed, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.